You're listening to the Adventist on Fire podcast, aofire.org. I think you're you're quite possibly one of my very favorite senior citizens, if you don't mind me saying. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> well, I'm my wife's favorite. Oh, that's that's good. It's always good to be your wife's favorite. Uh, let's start at the start. Where where were you born? Born in Mackay, North Queensland. Okay. Yeah. Also known as Mackay. That's right. To those who aren't from Mackay. <laughs> yeah. And then the, what next? Well, I was born 1927, March the 21st. Anyone want my phone number? I can give them that too. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe at the end. <laughs> and um, where'd you go after Mackay? Down to Nambour. I had an uncle who got drowned and uh, he was a single guy, a bachelor, and uh, my dad was, uh, I say popular with him, and uh, he had a banana farm, and uh, he thought he'd like to have my family move down and uh, live on that property, so he was clearing the land, ready to build a home on it. And uh, anyway, he passed away, never left a will, Mm. And um, who would he leave it to? However, my dad thought, well, if Uncle Bill wanted him to be there so much, then he put in a price on it and it was accepted. So that was back in 1938. Hmm. So who did he have to buy that off? The public curator. Right. Yeah, and then it was divided amongst other members of the family, what, what my dad paid for it. And so you grew up there on a banana farm? Yes, and there we moved into pineapples as well. And is that the secret to a long, healthy life? Well, it does help, <laughs> because uh, I was given till 14 to live. Why is that? Well, I'm 90 now. I was a twin, I had a twin sister. You don't look a day over 50, are you? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Why did they give you till 14? Uh, I was the weaker of them, and uh, the doctors thought there was something there that's not working right, but... Mm. Uh, I've gone through life without any problems, really. So it did work all right? Yeah. So it was the doctor but, that didn't work all right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do think that shifting onto the farm was good because we had five miles to walk to school. Yep. And uh, that exercise, plus fresh air and the fresh fruit and things like that, I think that all contributed. Mm-hmm. Was your family religious? Oh, yeah. Since 1932... Pastor Tom Kent conducted a mission in Mackay and uh, my dad went along and he was going to show him where he was wrong. He was a Catholic, if you don't want me mentioning that, he was a Catholic at the time. And uh, anyhow, uh, dad went along to listen to him and uh, became converted and so my mum and dad, um, and I'll put it this way, that... uh, God's message of love was to circle the globe. And it came to my mum and dad, the dearest people in my life, Mm. and I was happy to report that they accepted it. So was that a local pastor or was he an evangelist? He was an evangelist. Named Tom Kent? Yeah. And he's related somehow to every other Kent? Yes. Uh, Ray was his son and uh, Gary... Yeah. Is Ray's son. Okay. And uh, Ray and I, we grew up sort of together for a while there and got to Avondale College together. And we were close mates there. 
how old when you went to Avondale College? Oh, about 19, 19, 20. Yep. And yeah. I, I guess it looked pretty different. So we're sitting here in Kurenbong right now. Oh, surely. And it was a st- new experience to me because um, I grew up during the war years and it was hard to get labour. So I left school when I was 11 and uh, went to work on the farm with my dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can I go back just a year or two? When I was about nine, um, I had an uncle, Ernie, who also accepted the message at the same time. Now, he turned into a lay preacher. And I was sitting right in the front row once when he was taking his service, and he was preaching on the crucifixion of Christ. And at nine years of age, that sort of gripped me. And uh, I said, well, I want to grow up and be a preacher like my Uncle Ernie. Hmm. And uh, that's what I wanted to be. And you never had any other feelings any other ways? It was always that you wanted to do that? No, there was nothing else I wanted. Hmm. Nothing else. It was just that. Uh, When I decided to go to college, I did some other studies, history and... uh, uh, maths, because you had to have maths and uh, one or two other subjects I studied into them so that when I got to college and did the tests, I moved instead of elementary as they used to start us off on I went into uh, English 2 and uh, maths 1, so uh, uh, those years that I spent in study stood by me when I got to college mm. And so, how old did you say when you were at college? About 19. 19. Yeah. And you started studying ministry and theology? That's right. Did they call it that back then, or was it? <laughs> no, it was ministerial. Ministerial? The long ministerials course. There was a shorter one for older people, but those of us who were younger, that was the longer one. How many years? Well, all told, because I had two years there, and then I went home on the farm for two years, so my brother could come to college which he didn't do. He had to take turns. He left home and got on with a friend uh, truck driving and uh, so he he met a girl and decided going home and getting married. So Mm. we built a home for him on the property as well. Yep. And so that was the end of college for him, but I spent my two years there and then uh, went back after that. For another two years? Another three. So it was a five-year course? Yeah. Okay. Did you learn anything? Did I learn anything? <laughs> <laughs> I learned what... Well, I found out later I learned an awful lot of stuff that I didn't need when I got out into the okay. work. <laughs> uh, but I suppose it it um, stimulates a mental process. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and so five years of college and then what? Well, I had an accident in the last year and I was working for the... The uh, college buildings where you're putting up a girls' dormitory. Which one? The, the old one. The old one. <laughs> <laughs> I so learned a lot of skills there too. Was that the one next to White Building? No. The, as you come up the drive, the first one on your left. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. okay, good. Got it. Uh, and uh, I had an overhead cable break that's gave me hemorrhage of the cerebellum hmm. and uh, I had a drop study so I didn't graduate I dropped studies and uh, they gave me an opportunity to I say prove myself 
and uh, we went canvassing. So I was canvassing for 18 months, but I was looking after a church at the same time. Where at? And uh, that was in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And so I was always on the lookout for souls. It was interesting, the first family that we studied with, uh, we brought them into the truth. And uh, in six weeks from when we met this family, they were going to be baptised into some other church. Mm. Can I say which one? Sure, why not? <laughs> okay, it's the Elvis Witnesses. Okay. And he said, in six weeks' time. So I said to Margaret, we've got six weeks to convince him or confuse him. <laughs> and so I followed that all through my ministry. If you can't get them over the line, convince them or confuse them. <laughs> and so we had wonderful times there with them. And there was so you mentioned great. Margaret. Where did she join the party? <laughs> okay, yeah. No. That's an important part of the story. <clears throat> yeah, that was 1951. We got married. Okay. We had two years as students, outdoor, living outdoor. And, uh, yeah, from there, uh, when she did nursing at the sand. She did nurse, graduate nursing. Yep. And, uh, did they have to drive down? Uh, no, you couldn't get married while you were a nurse. Why not? Oh, they wouldn't allow you. <laughs> That's against the rules. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, we had to wait till she finished graduation. Right, so she lived down there and you lived up? Yeah. Yeah. And so we just corresponded. Did you write letters? Two a week. Two, two letters a week. And how were they delivered? I'll buy post. Okay, they had post then. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Of course. I'm not sure. I was, <laughs> yeah. I wasn't around. So not sure know. what vintage. <laughs> Weren't like carrier pigeons or horseback. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, they gave me a church to look after while I was canvassing. Yep. And it gave me an opportunity to settle in and find out what it was like being a minister. And so now we're in 1956 and uh, the brethren came and asked me how would I respond to a call to the mission field. And I said, well, if you want to find out, try it. (laughs) And so within a couple of weeks we got a letter asking if we would accept a position as district director on a little little island called Oba in those days New Hebrides group, which now is Vanuatu. Okay, so you did 18 months of canvassing in Victoria. Yeah. And then you got offered a role in the islands. Yeah. To sell more books? Uh, we did. Actually, we were successful. Right. And uh, when we got out to the islands, when we thought about memories back home, it was always ending up on canvassing days. Hmm. And uh, I wish they would introduce that again to all the young fellows who leave college. Yeah. Get into the work. So you were successful selling books here. Did you go over there and sell more books, or did you do other things over there? Uh, no. One time, one of the church members asked me if I could help him put in 300 acres of wheat. So uh, I sat in the tractor and <laughs> ripped up and down the field there and put in 300 acres of wheat for him. Yes. But uh, I had some offers presented to me for this or that, but... I wanted to be a preacher like my uncle Ernie. Right. And that thing drove me on. Now, as far as going to the mission field was concerned, with Margaret being a, a nurse, mm-hmm. 
and me being practical with my hands because after I stopped college, I stopped school rather, at, uh, when I was 11, uh, they had what they called a rural school, rural, mm-hmm. where uh, f- you could pick one day a week and you could learn practical things like uh, building, uh, seat metal work, internal combustion engine, and uh, all things like that, which blacksmithing, beekeeping, which stood me in good stead then for being a missionary because mm. uh, these things just kept coming back. Right. So did you spend all your time in this one place in near Vanuatu or...? Uh, we, we were on the one place in Vanuatu for three years, yep. three and a half years, as district director. And then after that, they called us up to Bougainville. How old were you then, sorry? Oh, 24 when I got married, uh, about 27. Okay, yep. And then to Bougainville? As president of the Bougainville field. Where is Bougainville? Bougainville geographically is the most northern island of the Solomon Islands group. Okay. And uh, yet it came under New Guinea administration, whereas the kids could paddle across in their canoes <laughs> into the Solomon Islands. So it was so close. It was mm. geographically, I say, a part of the Solomons. Okay. And how long were you there? We had seven years there. And what was the most memorable thing that happened? Most memorable thing, I think uh, uh, I built a hospital there. Uh, Margaret had just a little two-roomed bamboo building and uh, she said, I'd like a decent hospital. So we put up a 12-bed clinic and uh, made out of c- concrete blocks. And uh, fortunately, when I was at college, uh, with the building team, I learned how to lay bricks and so I could transfer that to concrete blocks mm-hmm. but we had to make the concrete blocks ourselves out there mm-hmm. and uh, had a neat little machine that we were able to turn them out nice and so <clears throat> it just reminds me of Otto Koenig's pineapple stories have you listened to those Don't a, think an old Baptist missionary in the in the New Guinea in western New Guinea and he's constantly having trouble with people stealing his pineapples. Did you ever have any issues with the local culture uh, merging with your culture and what you expected? When when we got to the islands, hmm. oh yeah, yes, yes. And uh, but they were amazed when uh, you know, I'd do things and I'd stand back and watch. And then there were some missionaries, pardon me for saying this, I could not understand why the division sent them out as missionaries. Mm-hmm. One fellow held his hands up and he said, apart from to shave and to eat with, I don't know what they're for. Mm. And the natives used to call them man belong book, man <laughs> belong book. <laughs> so I get them away from the books and useless. Right. I came in one night because we ran a 45-footer with our mission boat. I came in one night and I said to Margaret, why haven't you got the lights on? She said, oh, we had Henry, the engineer, the plantation next door, and he's been here all afternoon and can't get it going. No, I said, look, give me a go. And she said, no, come and have your tea first. I said, no, I go down there first. I set things right, gave it a crank, and it started up. Now, the native people, 
They said, Master's back. Well, <laughs> <laughs> they're referring to Margaret, right? Yeah, okay. they'd forgive you for <laughs> anything you did that didn't please them yeah. if you could do things. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, I built a boat while we were out there, a mm-hmm. uh, 20-foot one. Just, it was a speedboat, actually, but that was more for personal fun. Yeah. Because, you know, you get a bit tired of the doing this and doing that, so uh, I had it anchored in front of the house. We might just go for a water ski, four o'clock or something like that, but, yeah. Nice. But I just seemed to be able to turn my hand to whatever was needed. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know where some of the inspiration came from, apart from knowing that God was with us. And I said to Margaret when we were reminiscing recently, I said, I can't recall one challenge that we were not able to handle. And uh, that uh, just common sense to me, common reasoning. I called in at one of our mission stations and they had installed, and I don't know who advised them to, but they had installed a a three-phase generator, Mm -hmm. but it's producing 1,415 volts. Whereas we're on 240. And uh, I called him there and uh, I just took one look at it and said, well, okay, three slip rings, split the load up into three different lines and take it off each slip ring. And, uh, that's that's what I would have said. Yeah, got lights. <laughs> Everything went <laughs> perfectly. Now, where did I get the information from? I don't know. Awesome. But, uh, it was amazing th- challenges I I like challenges. There's one story I remember you telling me about um, you being a makeshift dentist. <laughs> yes. Do you want to tell us that one? <laughs> well, that was an interesting thing when the previous missionary said, look, uh, learn how to take our teeth. And so I did that. And uh, there was a, a Adventist dentist, and uh, he said, I've got a fellow out there right now who's wanting to have a tooth out. So I said, I'll get him in and say what to do. So this fellow must have been a bit simple-minded because the dentist said to him, now shut your eyes. So you want him to shut his eyes so that he didn't see me working on it. And so being green, not knowing really what to do, the dentist slipped his hand over mine, took the tooth out and everything was right. So we get out there and within a couple of weeks, A native guy came into the clinic and he wanted this tooth out. And uh, the dentist had given me a book on where to put the injections to anaesthetise it. And so we had the book in one room and the poor patient in the other. And uh, I'm a greenhorn, haven't done this before. And so... Mark gave the injection, I thought she did, so I laid a bit more <laughs> on. <laughs> and finally we got the tooth out, yeah. and this guy just got up and bolted. And uh, we looked at each other and said, well, that's gratitude. And so the next thing, about two weeks later, he came in, he said, oh, sorry, sorry, Master. He's gone along, gone away without asking me to... Uh, or, or to offer thanks. That's really what it was. He said, I, I didn't want to say thank you because I thought I was going to go away and die. 
<laughs> so that was the first one. But after that, uh, it just became sort of second nature. Mm-hmm. I want a tooth out. Okay, give him an injection and whip it out. <laughs> so after seven years of Bougainville, where to? Oh, I came back to Australia here, yep. and we were appointed to Bundaberg. Okay. But uh, before we got there, uh, they asked me if I'd take over the youth department here in this conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for six years, I was youth director in the conference. This one? Yeah. So North New South Wales? North New South. Okay. And one thing I did learn was that they don't save young people by entertaining them. Mm-hmm. And I wish all our youth leaders would catch on to that. Hmm. You don't hold the young people with entertainment. Why not? It's the Holy Spirit that's got to do the work. And there are some of the things they put on that the Holy Spirit, I reckon, goes out the window. Hmm. And uh, we had a great time with the youth here and for six years. From there... Uh, we were called down to Lily, Lilydale Academy, a Bible teacher, church pastor, and a dean of students. Yep. And uh, that was four years. Heavy, heavy game, heavy job, that one. It was like running an early teen camp all the year. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas 10 days is to be enough. <laughs> oh, dear. Awesome. So, after Lilydale. Let's keep going on this career path. <laughs> After that, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, we were called over to Western Australia, yep, and uh, started off with two churches, and uh, they must have been short of ministers. I don't know, but uh, they loaded me with six different churches. And then they gave. So this, that's your first time then as a church pastor in Australia. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, when we were canvassing... I, oh, you had a church then? Yeah. Yep. You know, I had a couple... Of, I ended up with two churches then. But, uh, yeah, six churches, and they gave me two intern young men to come and uh, join forces. Mm-hmm. Now, interesting, when I was in the youth ministry here, the, I visited churches all the way around, and they'd say, oh, we won't have communion on Sabbath. Pastor Watts will be here. So we'll have communion next Sabbath. So I went through just about those six years as scarcely a communion service. Mm. Then when I had six churches, I had six every quarter. <laughs> so you made up for it. Made up for it well and truly. Good. What, um, what after Perth or Western Australia? Well, what after that was retirement. That was it? And it was interesting because... Uh, I was in a certain town, and uh, the ministers met would meet together once a month, and they elected me as the chairman of the council, the the, the, the ministers fraternal. They elected me as the chairman, and I found that very exciting because, uh, for instance, they're talking about unclean and clean foods, and they want to come across you in John chapter ten. And, uh, and Acts, is it Acts chapter 10? I think so, in Acts, where uh, there was a discussion on uh, Gentiles against the Jews. And in vision, God gave Peter this vision that uh, of the sheep being let down with all clean and unclean animals in it. 
And uh, so they were going to show me that uh, you could eat anything mm. until I just put my hand up and stopped them on that one. Mm. Another one was on the Sabbath, and uh, one of the ministers said, oh, come over here to Colossians chapter 2, and I just again put my hand up. I said, I said, look, to save you embarrassment, I know what you're going to say, but to save you embarrassment, let me tell you what it means. So I chopped him off and gave him a study on Colossians chapter 2. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to enjoy being with them because uh, they couldn't trick us. Hmm. And we've got the truth. Hmm. I guess one of the times I called you, and maybe if this is a long story, we can take it to a whole other episode. But I called you one time because I was at a church where they were saying that Jesus died on a Wednesday. Oh, right. And that, you remember that concept and that discussion. So Jesus actually died on a Wednesday and he actually spent three days underground yeah. and, and this concept. Now, I'm not even sure why it's significant enough for them to worry about salvationally. Is it significant? Well, it does away with your, your Sabbath rest. Mm-hmm. And their argument being that Thursday was a high Sabbath. Yeah. So... Uh, if we know the truth, and, and these guys sometimes they would would say, "What do your scholars say on this subject?" And I remember one time when they were talking about the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and uh, who uh, did they allow to take part in the communion? Now the Catholics had to be Catholic, Lutheran had to be a Lutheran, Anglican. Didn't matter, you'd believe anything, so they reckon. And so I went down one by one, and I said, Well, Jesus didn't deny Judas Iscariot. They said, Oh, he wasn't there then. And I picked up my Bible and read it that Judas was there. And they looked at each other and said, Well, where did we get it from? I said, Yeah, where did you? They <laughs> didn't know where they had that because in the scriptures straight yeah. out that Judas Iscariot was there. Mm. And uh, so you need to know your Bible when you come to talking to some of these guys. Mm. And I'll tell you a tricky one. Uh, to use the example of Jesus for the Sabbath keeping as his custom was, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and immediately they said, but he lived under the old dispensation. I hadn't given much consideration to that, hadn't been taught it, but I had to go home and do some thinking around that one. And it is true, until the cross, they were still under the old dispensation. And so I worked that one out and uh, attacked them on it. (laughs) (laughs) Attacked them with your kindness, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, It's interesting, when I retired... The Anglican Archbishop called me in and asked, what was I going to do in retirement? He said, because we would like you to go up into the northwest and look after our churches up there. Hmm. He said, you could go to yours on a Saturday and look after us on the Sunday. So why didn't you take the job? (laughs) I could picture immediately what my preaching would be like. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It is very enjoyable having you um, take some Sabbath schools for us, but um, why do you think that, why do you think that you feel the freedom to say what you think and to um, 
I guess I guess you're not afraid to cover the topics that might offend some people. Why do you think you've got that edge? Well, my attitude is it's either me embarrass them or God embarrass them later on. Hmm. And uh, I've never been concerned about upsetting people. Again, if you can't convince them, confuse them. <laughs> no, I've never... I feel for them. I feel for people who don't really have the light of truth amongst us. Mm -hmm. And that concerns me. Even with some of our ministers, I just wonder why they can't take time to do a bit further research. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, and in preparing sermons, if they don't excite you in preparation, they won't excite your people. Hmm. If you were a young minister again, Harry, Hmm. what would you do differently or what would you do more of? Uh, Well... I think I might might do a bit further research into some of the things that have been a bit of a problem to our people. And because uh, I've been doing that through the years, and my wife says to me, she says, why do you spend so much time studying these things? Look, she said, it doesn't interfere with our salvation. And this is the excuse that too many people say uh, uh, it might be, what you say might be right, but it doesn't affect our salvation. Well, I've got to know the truth on these things because people come and ask me, and I can't let them down. So I've made it a habit to do a lot of study to see that I'm not ashamed of uh, our truth. In the uh, you spent that time in the islands, and then just recently here, um, your wife was going through some of those letters that were written back home. Yeah, and out of that developed a book. Is there is there a favourite story that you've got from this book? And do you want to tell us a little bit about that book? Well, she made it a practice every week to send a letter to seven different people back home, and her sister kept them. And she gave them to Margaret, and uh, she thought it might be good to put it together in a book form for the family. And then when Robin Priestley, who is a historian, she found that Mark had these letters, and the author of them was still alive. And so from there they got together and produced this book. And uh, so it wasn't coming from memory. It was actual, actually from the letters that had been written at the occasion when these events took place. Mm. And uh, as we read into them, we found things that we'd forgotten about. Mm. So to try and write a book on memory is not as accurate as writing from letters of that week. Mm. And uh, so Robin said, well, let's put it together. And uh, different ones, she got to read read it, and they said, this has got to go to press. Hmm. And so the Science Publishing took it on and uh, it ended up as <laughs> Book of the Year. <laughs> so have you read it? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and surprise me, it's the things that I had done, yeah. 
that uh, I'd forgotten about. You got up to more mischief than you remember? Uh, I don't know about that, but you take it for granted. <laughs> yeah. You take it for granted. Oh, I just must have done that. And uh, I mean, we were out at sea once, and uh, I'd called in on the radio sked, 7 o'clock, and I said, I'll be on the air at 11. And we were in foreign waters, and uh, the radio went out. So I just pulled it out of the cabinet and found that a condenser had had uh, cut short, and there's it was a wax paper one. And uh, by eleven o'clock, I had found in a biscuit tin, mind you, some wax-proof paper that I was able to repair this condenser and uh, back on the air again. And uh, I thought to myself, well, there are things that you have to do or, or you don't get through. Mm. And so I would attempt anything and uh, hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> We're running out of time, but how about a last question? If there, was, um, if there was something that you wanted the generation of today to hear that might inspire them to live a more full and passionate life? I would like the generation of today to take their, their Bible and their church seriously. Mm. I would like to see them put everything else aside but make sure heaven's secure. Now, we talk about the coming of Christ. That will be an exciting time. But what we need to do now is prepare for a place in heaven and we'll be ready for Jesus to come. And I don't like the idea of putting it aside and waiting and waiting. It's going to be too late one day. And uh, I'd also like them to see the standard that God has for this generation. If this is the last generation, you read about the 144,000 and what kind of people they are, what characters have they got, and where is God going to select them from, from his church? So I say make it easier for the Lord by living the life that he wants us to live Mm. so that we can be at least numbered with the multitude that's going to join with the 144,000. They're the first fruits of the righteous, but that's the first fruits, not the harvest. And so it'll grow from there, but I say prepare for it. Mm. We need to do that, and young people... uh, I'm afraid too many of them are going to be lost because they don't take time. And some of them say, well, who's showing us? One girl came to me, a minister's daughter, and she had tears in her eyes. She said, we're lost and no one will tell us the way. So seek ministers who know the way. Thanks for your time, Hori. Do you want to close up with prayer for us? Thank you. Our gracious Father, We thank you for your church, Lord. We thank you for the the, um, mission that you've given to us to go into all the world and tell people of the love that Jesus has for them and to let them see that he loved so much that he was prepared to pay the price. And uh, his sacrifice on Calvary should touch the heart of each one of us. Don't wait until the day on the resurrection and find that we're with the wrong lot because there's going to be the resurrection of the righteous plus the second resurrection make our calling and election sure. And so I'd like to say to everyone, just give your heart to Jesus and live for him, make him his, your example. If I pray in his name, amen. Amen. Hurry, right, thanks for your time. I'm thinking on the next one, we can discuss the types of music that you play to your vegetables in the backyard. 
Does that sound good? Hey, it does. Actually, it's uh, Bach's Violin Concerto in E major. Okay, that's the best one? <laughs> that's the best music okay. for growing vegetables. <laughs> good, and we'll talk about why later. How about that? <laughs> Thanks for your time. Good, thank you. Go Ye, a strategic board game that's more Adventus than Doug Batchelor eating haystacks on Sabbath. In Go Ye, players spread the gospel by investing in spiritual gifts, mission trips, and church organizational growth, while planting churches across a custom world map of 58 conferences and 10 divisions. The goal is to have the most TMI before the second coming, but will the GC president, the missionary, or the adventurepreneur get the biggest crown? Go Ye to aofire.org to register your interest.